take your Bibles and turn to the first epistle to, from John. That's in the back of your New Testament. If you uh, need a Bible, there are Bibles spread out underneath you and like the, uh, in the, in the shelves underneath the chairs in front of you. But we are looking for First John, not John, but First John. Again, at the back of your Bibles. I should probably know the, uh, the page number in our few Bibles, but I, I don't know it offhand. So 1 John. So we are starting a series on 1 John. Um, we're going to read the first four. Uh, now this is very similar to what we would see in the Gospel of John. You know, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we see that John's writing is very similar, and he begins his, uh, what they would call the prolegomena, or the prelude to his book in this way. So if you are able, would you please stand to read God's Word? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. You may be seated. So here's where I want us to, to think about uh, this as we get to, into an introduction to the first epistle to, to, from John to uh, really churches. Now, it's, it's interesting in that it doesn't really say who the author is right out front, but it's uh, been John since the, the really the writing of this book. It's not to a specific audience, but it's most likely to an audience of churches in Asia Minor. And he is writing this uh, as, as a very aged man. Okay? Like, so at this point, John, remember, John is the only apostle the one who was with Jesus, the 12 apostles, who died by natural causes. And he actually is writing this is probably in his 80s at this point. So an octogenarian uh, writing this. And so as we reread this, he'll use language uh, such as children, my beloved children. And that is a, a term of affection and great warmth. And he can say those things because he's old, right? So everybody, I mean, again, they're not a whole lot of 80-year-old guys back then, right? And so John is writing to the churches with great and a deep affection. But I also want you to think about it in this way. Think about this. Think about those people who are younger than you that you have great affection for. Great love. It could be children. It could be grandchildren. It could be nieces or nephews. It could be children that you're surrounded by. And I want you to think about if you knew it was the last time you were going to be able to speak to them, what would you want to tell them? What would you want them to come away from that meeting with? Um, I'm pretty sure you would probably bypass the weather, right? I'm pretty sure you would probably bypass maybe even some of the news that you're hearing on a regular basis. But as a Christian, what you want to give them and what you want them to get is an understanding of the gospel. It's, you know, nothing else matters if you know that this is the last time 
that you are actually going to see them. You're not worried about offending them, right? You're not worried about hurting their feelings with the truth, right? What you're doing is you want to impart wisdom that will be eternal to them. Because your hope is that they will be with you in glory forever. And you probably won't mince words and you'll probably get right to the point. Now, in the midst of storytelling, um, I don't know if this is the case, but I think that there's a sense in which um, we repeat ourselves a little bit, right? Well, that's the case with, it, with John as he writes this letter to his beloved children in the faith. So this is what John, this is sort of John's, um, one of his farewell letters. He, again, he's writing it to a church, and he's writing this, this particular um, for a couple reasons, okay? And he gives us some hints throughout this, but let's, um, let's think about these things. He, he says he writes these things uh, for a couple different reasons. Now, in the Gospel of John, we know that in John chapter uh, 20, verse 30, 31, I believe, he says, I write these things to you that you may have eternal life and have life in his name, in Jesus, right? So he's, this is an evangelistic letter. He writes the, these letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, we're going to do all three of those, and he writes these letters um, in, in this way. The, you know, the church was now um, composed of second and third generation Christians, right? So John has seen the church mature. He's seen the church struggle. He's seen the church persecuted. And he's seen people continuing in the faith. But he writes these, this letter um, for these reasons. First, he wants to c- combat false teachers who were beginning to infiltrate the churches. He wants to expose false doctrines and promote spiritual truth. John was not afraid to engage the culture where first century Christians had lived. He recognizes that these false teachers are now coming in, and he wants them to remain steadfast in the apostles' teaching. Secondly, John has an ethical purpose in writing. Specifically, he deals with attitudes towards sin and the necessity of love for other Christians. You know, the church can very easily succumb to the values of the culture around and go, you know, like, it's not really that big a deal, right? It's not that big a deal, like, culturally, right now, where we live. It's not that big a deal to live with somebody before you get married, right? Is that God's design? Is that God's plan? No. But the church, we, we can be... Um, carried along with the culture and think that it's okay. Uh, Thirdly, John has a pastoral purpose in writing, and his pastoral heart beats for the health of the church, for the strengthening of Christians in the faith, and for genuine fellowship among believers. John wants them to understand that they can have assurance of faith in Christ. Like he recognizes that one of the most difficult things that people struggle with in the midst of their faith, in the midst of their Christianity, is like, do I really believe? Is this true? How do I know I'm saved? Anybody here? I'm not, you don't have to raise your hand. But I mean, I know that there are people here who you've thought about that. Like, do I really believe? Am, am I really saved? Do I really believe these things? And John sees that, and his pastoral heart comes out, and he wants to build you up in the assurance of salvation found in Jesus alone. So he writes with that intent. And then fourthly, you know, he had a pers- personal purpose for writing, and we actually find that 
in verse 4 of what we just read, and his personal purpose, and this, it might sound a little bit selfish, right? He actually says, look at verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's very interesting that there's almost this selfishness that he's writing. He goes, I want to be joyful in the midst of all that I'm giving you so that you will walk faithfully with the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, there have actually been early manuscripts. There were some, some scribes who actually changed, uh, you know, again, when they're copying you know, manuscripts, they're copying it and they go, well, that can't be right. And so they actually changed the word and we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. But the earliest manuscripts are actually that it's our joy, not your joy. And what we find is we find these um, in, in 1 John 1, verse 3 and 4, we read about the purpose here, where it says, and we were writing these things so that our joy might be complete. Like, that's a purpose statement there, right? We also see this in chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, and you can follow along, my little children, again, a term of affection, because he's an older guy going to his church, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And then if you look at 1 John 5, verse 13, there's also another purpose statement there. 1 John 5, 13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, those verses are talking about why he's writing uh, this, this particular letter. But when you look at 1 John 5, verse 19, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones actually thinks that this is sort of the key verse uh, in the midst of this passage. So 1 John 5, verse 19 says this, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So right there we see this, this battle that is taking place. Like, are we going to, and we see this, right? Like, we see this and we feel this in the midst of our lives. Are we going to follow ourselves, the flesh, the world, and the devil? Or are we going to follow Jesus? We feel that every day. Every day that we open our Bibles, every day that we interact with a world that is bent, twisted, and distorted because of sin. Are we going to follow the values of the world or what we think is right? Or are we going to follow the values that we find within the Word of God? Every day we battle with that. We, I mean, Paul writes in Ephesians 6, putting on the armor of God. We read about in Galatians 5, how there's this war going on between us, between the flesh and, and this new spirit that lives within us. It's the struggle that we see. So, he, he's writing these, these things, and he's writing these things in particular with these purposes in mind. But let, let's talk about some of the errors that we see have, that have filtered into the church, the early church at this point. Um, one of the issues that has come into the early church is this thing called Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism uh, comes from this, uh, this Greek word uh, gnosis, which means knowledge. And this Gnosticism that is coming into the church is saying this, that there's some secret hidden knowledge that you have to have in order to be saved in Christ. And what is happening is this Gnostic knowledge is filtering into the church, and John is saying, no, we don't want any part of this Gnostic knowledge, because here's what's going on. You know, this, the Gnostics um, considered this, that not only was this, um, the way of salvation was through a secret superior knowledge granted to the initiated, um, but second, 
Gnostics considered all matter to be evil, but spirit to be good. Therefore, the Gnostics taught that your physical body is evil, but your soul is good. Um, I mean, think about this. I mean, we're, we're talking about you know, some, some Plato. We're talking about some other things. If, if you remember from your Western Civ, you know, some of the false teachers John is combating in this letter have begun to infiltrate the church with incipient forms of this Gnostic teaching. The first error was a practical error, teaching Christians wrong ways to live. Um, taking this error upon themselves, uh, we would call this um, aestheticism, right? So here's what they would do, where you begin to punish your body. And, and why would anyone do this? They're punishing their body to free the spirit. Remember, matter is evil, but spirit is good. The other extreme is licentiousness, a word that means to live any way you want. I think this is what we find today in our culture. We don't find a lot of aestheticism going on today in our culture, beating our body to liberate the spirit. I mean, that's kind of like, if you remember back the Da Vinci Code and some of those things, that's kind of what they were, they were dealing with back then, uh, and they were writing about that. We don't see that as much today. But I do think that we have this idea of licentiousness, meaning this. Um, uh, you can do whatever you want to with your body because it doesn't affect your spirit. After all, if your body is evil and your spirit is good, then it doesn't matter what you do with the body. Rules don't matter. You can get on drugs all you want, have all the sex outside of marriage you want. Why? Because the body is evil. It does not matter much what you do with your body. Do we have any Gnostics in our society today? Yeah, I think so. Um, And Gnosticism had generally crept into the church. But Gnosticism also, so, so we see that, right? I mean, there are people today who go, you know what, I can do whatever I want to all week long, and then I come to church, and everything's good, right? Because I'm forgiven, and, and you know, sin is not really that big a deal. I can do what I want. And, and there's a sense in which they say that the body is evil, but the spirit is good. And so we're separating the body and soul, and that's not what Christians do. We don't. It, for the body and soul to be separated at death, apart from Jesus coming back, is an unnatural thing. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We are meant to be body and soul together forever. But Gnosticism also led to a doctrinal error. Not just errors in living, but Gnosticism uh, developed into this doctrinal error, and this doctrinal error was called docetism. All right, so follow with me here, because this is important. And it's important to the first four verses. Um, Docetism comes from this this Greek word, um, dokeo, which means to seem or to appear. And if the body is evil, then God, who is spirit being, cannot have any contact with the body. And what would such a false belief do to the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus? You can't have an incarnation if docetic Gnosticism is true. If you could not have Jesus becoming man, thus the docetic Gnostics taught that Jesus did not have a literal human body. They denied the real humanity of Jesus. They said Jesus was from God, but that they denied he was God in human flesh. They said his spirit was from God, but when Jesus was on the earth, that wasn't really Jesus in human form. That was just like what he appeared to be. So he appeared to be like a man, but he wasn't a real man, right? Well, the problem with that is that then we have a problem at the cross, right? Because we, we find at the cross is that Jesus took upon the sins of every man, woman, and child who would believe in him. 
And he was real body, real flesh. And so what they were doing is they were undermining the doctrine of the atonement. Now, this gets very um, somewhat technical, but what we find is that this error is coming into the church. And by the way, this error is coming into the church because now you're at the second and third generation of Christians post the apostles, and they're saying, well, were you there? You didn't see him. You didn't touch him. You didn't hear him. So really, Jesus really wasn't a real man. He just seemed to be like a real man. Well, when we think about this, I want you to think about this in in the likeness of our own church or the likeness of the church. How long does it take for a church to lose the gospel? How long? Generations? Or maybe just years? How long did it take for some of the mainline churches in America to go from dabbling in progressive liberalism theologically to being basically social clubs that just have crosses on their buildings? How quickly did that happen? It happened in a matter of generations, really. And what we find is that there's a a drifting towards aligning our values with the values of the culture. And we have to work against that. And we have to be vigilant about making sure that we have biblical values and biblical truths and that we stand firm upon the rock of our salvation rather than on the shifting sands of man's wisdom. When when Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and many of you know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a pastor a Lutheran pastor in Germany prior to World War II who lost his life because he wouldn't renounce or or he wouldn't endorse Hitler and the the genocide that was occurring to the Jews. When he came over in the 30s to New York um, to study, I think it was Trinity College at the time or Trinity University, he came over and he was aghast that every church that he walked into was, was no longer preaching the gospel. This is in the 30s. They weren't preaching salvation by faith alone and Christ alone by grace alone. They were preaching other doctrines. As a matter of fact, the only place that he could find people who truly believed in New York City was in Harlem. And so this very white, very German, very Lutheran pastor began to go to gospel churches in Harlem because that was the only place that he could find people who really were preaching the truth about Jesus. And he was so discouraged at seeing the secular humanism that had infiltrated some of the the grander and wealthier churches in New York. But how quickly can our churches turn? Well, let's go back to to 1 John 1 through 4. And this is why we read these things. Notice what it says um, when we see there's actually this term we that occurs six different times. You know, in 1 John 1, 1, we, we know that it's the Apostle John who's preaching, but he says, but we have heard from the beginning which we, which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have looked upon. And in verse 2, we have seen it. We see it in verse 3, which we have seen and heard. And in verse 4, and we are writing these things. So it's like, I don't know, does he have a turtle in his pocket or something? Like, I mean, like, who's he, who's he talking about, right? When he says we right there, right? What he's using is he's saying, we are the apostles, meaning that the apostles, the 12 that were were appointed by Jesus to actually expand the church, 
we is speaking about the apostles. And so when he says these things, he's saying it's, it's we. We have seen these things. So he's speaking from an apostolic perspective, an apostolic leadership. And here's what he says. You know, and this is why it's so important, because he's combating this idea that Jesus wasn't a real person, that he just appeared to come in the flesh. And here's what he had to say. He says, no, you know what? We all heard, and he doesn't say it here, but, but if you ask him, we heard the Sermon on the Mount. We heard the warnings to the Pharisees. We heard about the forgiveness of sins to those who, who came in humility and pain. And what do we see? What do we see in the midst of this? We saw people who were lame that now they can walk. We saw Jesus feed the 5,000. A few of us saw the transfiguration. But then somebody might say, but did anybody touch him? Right? You know, it's one thing to see. Because, you know, your eyes can actually be deceptive. Was it, was it a mirage? And there's another thing to hear. I mean, um, wives, how many times have you said something to your husband and you thought he heard you? It probably happens on a, a regular basis, right? You know, and the husbands, how many times does your wife tell you she said something? You're like, I don't remember that. I don't remember hearing that at all, right? Um, I mean, that, that's just a, an example. I know that doesn't happen here uh, at all. But what about, you know, did anybody touch Jesus? You know, and Peter could tell you if he were here, and I guess this is, this is the apostolic way. Peter could tell you how Jesus pulled him into the boat when he was sinking in the water. John could tell the story about how he laid upon Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. Or how Jesus came and he literally washed the feet of the apostles the last time he was with them. But Thomas, Thomas, you know, if he were here, and he, he's not there, it's John speaking. Thomas is the apostolic we, but Thomas can tell this story from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 28. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with me, was, was not with them when Jesus came after the resurrection. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And we see Thomas who actually says, No, not only is Jesus a real person, not only is the doctrine of the incarnation, the sinless incarnation of Jesus, such a, an epic doctrine that we need to hold on to it. Because we also know that the incarnation has effects for the cross and this doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. If you begin to play with the incarnation, if you be begin to believe and allow docetism to filter into the church that Jesus only appeared to be, then everything falls apart because of false doctrine. And I, brothers and sisters, I'm telling you today, there are churches meeting in Smithfield that do not believe in the incarnation. 
that they do not believe in the resurrection. Or they kind of believe them as, oh, those are kind of optional. You know, we're not really sure. You can, you can believe them or you don't have to believe them. But I'm telling you, if you go into a church and you find out they don't believe in the incarnation or the resurrection or that Jesus just appeared to be a man, just run out the door and take as many people as you can. Because they're not a church. They're a club that meets on Sunday morning. Um, so as we think about these things and we think about you know, sort of this docetism, so there's this, this idea that occurs um, that we find that, again, it's, it's a veiled reference to Jesus. When we looked upon it, we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now this word of life, this is a, a technical term, term, and what we find, let me just, uh, this phrase, word of life, is in tune with this high Christological note, teaching that the eternal, preexistent, fully divine Son came into the world as the definitive revelation of God. He is the voice, image, and embodiment of God. Through Him, God is made audible, visible, and touchable. Also, through Him, we are given life, eternal life. The incarnation, this is from Rudolf, I don't even know how to say his last, last name, Schnackenberg. You know, he says this, The descent of the life eternal into the world of humankind alienated from God, the invasion of the absolute indestructible power of life into this transitory cosmos, destined as it was to perdition. Are you concerned about death and damnation? You should be. We're all doomed to die and then face the judgment. So then, how can anyone escape? It is through this word of life that has been seen and heard and touched. And, and so how do we have fellowship with this word of life? How do we have fellowship with this Jesus and with God? Because we know that Jesus came to reconcile relationships with God and man. And what we find in verse 3 is, is, is um, a puzzling uh, passage to begin with. So what does it mean to have fellowship with the Father through the apostles? Because it says, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, and that's the gospel message that came from the lips of Jesus himself, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And you're like, okay, great. we got fellowship with us. What does that mean? And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is, you don't have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, if you don't have fellowship with the apostles and the message of Jesus. If you are outside of the apostolic message of Jesus given to the apostles through Jesus, then you are not in fellowship with the Father and with the Son. That's what he's saying. And what he's saying there is similar to the Apostles' Creed. You know, when we say the Apostles' Creed in the midst of our church, the very end of the Apostles' Creed, we say it like this. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Now, when we say Catholic, let me just clarify. I'm not saying Roman Catholic, okay? That's not what we're saying. Catholic is a term which means universal. Catholic is a term meaning um, that when we say that the, the Holy Catholic Church, we're saying the true Christian church at all times and in all places. That's what we're saying. Actually, we could actually say that. I believe in the true Christian church at all times and in all places. That's what we say when we mean Catholic. But then we also say we believe in the um, communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, 
the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Now, when we talk about the communion of saints, this is what John is speaking to with regard to the apostolic fellowship that you have. When you are in fellowship with us and the message of the gospel, then you are in a reconciled relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son. And that is the good news. If you bring any other good news, like, like um, what, what Paul writes in the book of Galatians, if I or an angel from heaven should give you a message other than the one that I presented to you, let him be accursed. If there's another message of salvation, one that is tweaked, that says, you know, Jesus just seemed to be God. He just seemed to be man. All of these other ways that we denigrate and, and, and really rob and strip Jesus of who he was, then that is an error that we need to, to put off. So again, the fellowship that we have, the fellowship that we have with one another by being made the family of God, is through the Lord Jesus Christ. This word of life. Now, when we think about um, this idea, we also think about the book of Ephesians. Let me read. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to uh, Ephesians. Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 19 and 21. This is speaking about this idea of um, this um, communion of saints. So, then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, the cornerstone is Jesus. The foundation is the apostles and the prophets. And we are being built together into this family of God. No longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's the reality of the gospel. Once you were strangers and aliens, and now you are fellow citizens and members of the family of God. That's a good deal. Now, the other thing that we see, in, and let me, let me just finish up uh, with 1 John as we think about communion, is verse 4. Verse 4 says this, And we are writing these things to you that our joy may be complete. Now, how do we, what do we make out of that? How do we see his joy being made complete? Well, look at the third letter to John. He says something very similar. Third John, and I just say four, because there's no chapter, there's just one chapter, so it's third John four. It says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's very similar to what we see in 1 John chapter 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made, so that our joy may be complete. And here's what John is saying. How can I feel good about my children if I'm worried about their salvation? I mean, yes, they might be doing well in the world. They might be at the top of their field. They might have multiple degrees. They might have a wonderful spouse. They might have, you know, but if they don't have Jesus, then they have nothing. Nothing. 
because it's all going to go away. But if they have Jesus, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If they have Jesus, then it doesn't matter if they're you know, digging ditches. <laughs> it doesn't matter if they're, they're struggling in other areas of their life. But if they have Jesus, then their eternal state is secure. And I can take great comfort in the fact that I will be with them forever in heaven. You see, you cannot have joy without Christ when you think about the next generation. Um, when I've talked to many of you, um, that is the prayer request that's been on your heart more than anything else. Is that my, my children, my grandchildren, my nieces, my nephews, my family would follow Jesus. They lo- you long to see and hear that your children are walking with Christ. We have good friends. Uh, or my, my parents have good friends who, who love Jesus. And their 39-year-old son, who is outside of Christ, had a massive heart attack this week. You know, and he's, he's alive. And they, you know, they, they rushed back from Florida where they were, and they rushed back. And, and as they're rushing back, and my mom and dad are, are, are saying, just pray for this man. Pray for this 39-year-old man who it was in great shape. He actually had the heart attack on a rowing machine at the gym. And they actually were able to do CPR and save his life because they knew how to do it. Wonderful shape. I mean, that's, that's good reason never to do the rowing machine again. Don't do it. But, but as they're coming back from Florida, all they want to know is that we just want another chance to tell our son about the gospel. Lord, would you save his life in such a way that he follows you for however many more days he has here? You see, he was successful running a company. I mean, making a lot of money, taking trips and doing all these other things. But if you don't have Jesus, the parents cannot have joy in their son. But the good news is that there is forgiveness found in the gospel. The good news is that we can have life eternal in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for the way that you love us and you give us these signs and seals to confirm our faith, to build us up so that we might love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to pursue you and to abide with Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.